some of you may have met my father-in-law. He lives in Indiana, but he comes to visit here at our church every so often. Uh, his name is Don, and Don became a Christian at a very young age, but he didn't really walk closely with God until a certain event happened to him in his life. Uh, he was in his early 20s at the time, and, and he had two children, same age as mine, a, a two-year-old son named Andrew, and he had a one-year-old daughter named Katie, my wife. And uh, one weekend, his wife was out of town, and that left him to take care of the children. And as he was tucking his son, Andrew, in for bed, Andrew asked, Dad, would you pray with me? And the truth was that at that time in his life, Don felt very distant from God, and he felt like any time he prayed that they, his prayers never left the room. They just kind of hit the ceiling and bounced back to him. But he had attended church all of his life, so he knew how to pray. He knew what to say, and he sat down with his son and, and did pray with him that night. But after leaving the bedroom and walking out into the hallway, Don told me, he felt the still, small voice, that, that quiet whisper of God inside of him saying these words, how long do you think you can fool that boy? Or, if you were to say it another way, how long are you going to keep pretending to be someone you're not? And in many ways, in this passage this morning, Paul is going to ask the same type of question to those who were a part of the Corinthian church. Uh, today, my outline is really simple, two parts. First, I just want to try to explain this passage, and secondly, I want to try to apply uh, this passage. And to explain it as we begin, it's very important to understand that in this passage, Paul is describing both something in the past and also in the present. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, begins in the past. Now, if you've been here for any part of our series on 1 Corinthians, you'll know that Paul came to the city of Corinth, which was a very important, very sophisticated, and yet very immoral city. And he shared the gospel with some people. And some of those people trusted Christ. And what he did then is he lived among them for a year and a half. And he continued to be their pastor and their teacher. And during that time, he got to know them very, very well. Then he went and he went off to another city to plant another church. And at the start of this passage, what the Apostle Paul does is he gives an assessment of where he feels the people at the church were at at the end of his year and a half time that he spent with them. And we read it in verses 1 and 2. And in verses 1 and 2, Paul is going to tell them three things, which Tom just read for us this morning. He says there were three things that were true about you after this year and a half. The first is that you were infants in Christ. Uh, though they had become believers, and, and we know this in part because he called them brothers, he says you were extremely young and immature in the faith. You, you might think of them as being kind of baby believers, and so, in light of this, Paul says, number two, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Okay, now this expression of the flesh is an important one to understand a bit about. 
Uh, It's something that he actually kind of comes close to defining twice later in the passage. If you look down at verses 3, he says, Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human ways? And then at the end of verse 4, he says, Are you not being merely human? And so, living by the flesh means living and acting not like God, but like ordinary people. And so living by the flesh is doing and saying and thinking what just seems right to you or what feels good to you. And usually in the Bible, that's contrasted with living by the Spirit. Living by the Spirit is saying and doing and thinking what really is right in God's power and by his grace. And so Paul says that when we first met, you were much more in the first category than you were in the second category. Your behavior, in many ways, was no different from the people that you lived among. And so he says, finally, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Now this idea that he gives of of milk and solid food, I fed you with milk instead of solid food, can be a little bit confusing, and we have to think a a little bit about what that means. Does does that mean there's like different levels to, to the gospel where a normal person gets the milk and then you get to sort of this Jedi level and you can suddenly eat the steak? Well, there's two possible explanations for what Paul meant by this, and I think we really need both to understand it. It's probably a a combination of the two. Uh, The first could mean that, that Paul, in his teaching, he just kept it simple. And he only shared with them things that they could handle. Uh, You might do the same thing if if you were teaching here, our second graders, and then later that day you were teaching our college students. You would prepare differently. You would think about your audience and prepare appropriately. So what Paul could be saying is he could be saying, I spent my time on the basics because you weren't ready for anything else. I gave you what was appropriate to your stage of development in life. But there's another way to look at this, too. Uh, A man by the name of Nolan Bushnell, does anybody know that name? He founded a company in 1970. Anybody want to guess the company? Binoculars. Binoculars. You would think so, yeah. But maybe he did found that company, too. But in 1970, he founded a company called Atari. And his vision was that he wanted to make video games accessible to everyday people, to the general public. And so the first game that he developed was an enormous hit, and it was called Pong. Some of you have probably played it. And Pong came out of Nolan's core belief that a great game has to be easy to learn, but difficult or even impossible to master. And if you've ever played Pong, you know that it's exactly that. Anybody can pick it up and and play it easily, but uh, mastering it is incredibly difficult or, or maybe even impossible. Well, the gospel is like that too. The gospel is one big cohesive idea that explains all of life in ways that are both simple and complex. And so the gospel is like milk. It's plain. It's pure. It's perfect for new Christians. Even a child can learn it. I'm a sinner. Jesus loves sinners. And he came to die for my sins. And because he rose again, I can rise again too in him. The gospel is like milk. It's not complicated. 
And once you grasped it, you, once you've grasped it, you've grasped it. It's yours. But you're also meant to spend your whole life grasping it because it's also meat. It also has this incredible richness and texture and nutrition and depth. It has an infinite number of implications and applications, and that's why those who study it all their lives, right, guys like Tom Llewellyn, they're always discovering something rich and new and exciting, and and the gospel is robust enough that a person can lean on it, even in the worst tragedies and deepest sufferings of life. It's like a spectacular jewel that the more you stare at it, the more it glitters and shines. And so the gospel at once is both meat and milk at the same time. And as Paul taught it to the Corinthians, he was giving them the full meal, but they only absorbed the milk. They couldn't grasp or digest the meat yet. It just passed right through them. And so the quality of the food is not the issue here. The issue is the development of the stomach. And how much a person receives depends on their maturity. Okay? So what Paul is saying is, on one hand, you missed some things because I couldn't teach them to you. And on the other hand, you missed some things because you couldn't digest them yet. You just weren't mature enough at that point. Okay, now, if you've got a Bible, take a look at the passage. If you don't, don't worry about it. But if you do, do worry about it. I want you to look at verse 2. And I want you to search for something really, really small, a period. In the middle of verse 2, it comes right after the word it. Do you see it? Okay, that period right there in the middle represents three years of time, okay? And and the reason that that is is because Paul came to Corinth and he had lived with them, as I said, a year and a half, and now he's he's writing his assessment to where he thinks they were at that time. We just read it. I, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, okay? And now, after the period, he moves into the present And three years have gone by since that year and a half went by. Does that make sense? So we're talking about four and a half years that he's had relationship with them. And what Paul writes here next, after the period, is devastating. It's his first rebuke to the church, and it definitely would have stung a bit. He says, and even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh. Now, there is something important here that actually doesn't translate very well in English, unfortunately. The word that he uses for the flesh in verse 3 is different than the word that he uses for the flesh in verse 1. And I'm not going to go into all the details on that, but in in verse 1, he uses the flesh as sort of like stating a fact. And in verse 3, he uses a different word where the flesh is tinged with like a moral judgment. And, and this would not have escaped the Corinthians in any way. Let me, let me illustrate kind of what this, this would have done. Um, at, at dinner on Wednesday, um, somebody in my family shoved two pieces of corn very deep into their nose. And... Um, Two of the four of us who were at the table were very concerned about this, and two of us thought that it was hilarious. 
that is, until we had to remove the corn using an instrument we refer to kind of affectionately in our house as the snot sucker. <laughs> now, <clears throat> the event ended with two of us feeling very relieved, one of us feeling very upset, and the fourth of us thinking it was all still very hilarious. Okay. <laughs> now, if I were to tell you that the corn stuffer was this person right here behind me, <laughs> and that is a picture from Wednesday night, um, you would do what you just did, right? You would laugh, and, and you would think that that was cute, and, oh, that's what kids do. But if I were to tell you that the offender was my wife, <laughs> you know what you might start to do? Shift kind of uncomfortably in your seat, maybe start to become a little concerned. And the reason that you would do that is because what is normal and expected for an infant is very out of place for an adult. And Paul says here, you were once of the flesh. You were an infant, a baby. You were weak and immature. You belonged in the nursery, and that was normal. That was natural. But in three years' time, you haven't changed a bit. You are still of the flesh. And now it's a little uncomfortable. And it's a little out of place. And I'm starting to become concerned. Now you've got to understand a little bit about the context of the book to feel the impact of this. These people in this church thought they were so spiritual, so wise, so mature, so special. And Paul looks them in the eye and he says, no, you're not. He says, you're a bunch of babies. You have everything that you needed to mature, but you never did. And he goes on and he says this, He says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? He he says, the proof that you are still infants is in your actions and in your attitudes, and the evidence of your immaturity is so plain to see. He says, exhibit A your jealousy with one another. He says, exhibit B, there is strife or quarreling among you. And and we're going to discover that they've made church into a popularity contest. And instead of seeing their teachers as co-workers who serve together, they've pitted them against each other and they've picked teams. And Paul says, it is time to grow up. How long will you keep pretending to be someone you're not. Now, we're not going to spend time today focusing on their particular problems as a church, but I think what Paul is getting at is you're just very petty like children. That's what he's saying to them. Um, Tom will probably cover that, I'd imagine, a little bit at least next week. But instead, what I'd like you to do just for a minute is to to flip ahead in your Bible, in this letter, actually, 1 Corinthians, to chapter 15. And we're not going to look at it yet, but... Just to make things a little easier later, I'm going to ask you to put your finger there, or if it's on your phone, maybe you could bookmark it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
And I want to move on a little bit towards uh, applying uh, this passage this morning. And I want to try to do it. There's lots of ways to apply this, but I want to do it in, in one uh, specific way. I want to aim my application at Christians this morning, but in particular, I want to talk especially to those of you who have been believers for the same amount of time that, that these people have for, for three years or more. Okay, Three years or more, I want to speak mostly to you this morning, although I hope it maybe will apply to some others as well. And uh, the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Spiritually speaking, are you growing? Spiritually thinking, speaking, are you growing? In, in your in your spiritual life, in your walk with God, whatever kind of words or language that you want to put to it, is there anything different about it now than there was six months ago or a year ago or five years ago or 30 years ago? Do you know God more now? Do you love God more now? Do you experience his grace and his power more deeply now in your life than you did then? Are you any more committed? Are you any more faithful? Are you any more obedient? Are you any more joyful? What do your actions and your attitudes tell you about that? Spiritually speaking, if you were honest with yourself, are you growing? Now, this is a really, really hard question to answer. It's particularly hard when we try to answer it for ourselves because growing in spiritual maturity can sometimes be almost imperceptibly slow, right? It's like children. You don't see them grow at the time, and, and, and you look back, and all of a sudden, they're, they're old. You, you don't notice it as it's happening. And beyond that, the process is almost never easy. Growing up is really tough, and doing some of the things that need to be done in order to grow is, is difficult. It's, it's like watering and weeding, right? It requires a sacrifice of time and of effort and of mental energy and discipline and organization and self-control. And the thing about it that makes it even tougher to do is that we don't have to do it, right? It doesn't always feel pressing. It doesn't always make its way onto the front burner. And there are so many other things that do force their way forward. I'm sure I'm not wrong when I say that there are some of you in this room right here who have so much pressure and stress on your life right now that you feel like you're going to explode. Adding one more thing feels impossible to you. There, there are others of you who are in the room right now that you feel, spiritually speaking, like you're just treading water, you know? feel distant from God, growth seems hopeless, you're discouraged. I really want to encourage you today not to let any of those things stop you because spiritual maturity is exactly what all of us need. And in fact, it is the thing you need the most. Now, there are, are periods of time in our spiritual walk with God, I, I guess you could say, when, when we don't feel like we're growing. Short seasons of drought is very normal. 
Uh, one of the reasons why we know that it's normal is because people in the Bible experience those things too. If, if you study the book of Elijah, for instance, you'll find that he had a spiritual drought actually in the midst of a literal drought. If you read through the Psalms, you'll find people who experience the same sorts of things. And we shouldn't let those little seasons of drought alarm us or shatter our faith. We, we ought to continue to seek God through those times and to learn what it means to endure. Sometimes that's what he's teaching us, possibly. God sometimes grows us in ways that we can't see or we don't understand and it's often especially during those drought seasons. But today, I'm not really talking about that, okay? Today, I'm not talking about several days or several weeks or even a couple of months. Um, I'm talking about many months. This morning, I'm talking about years. Long periods of time is something very different than short seasons. And, and, and it's important to recognize them because if we don't see them or notice them, if we never ask ourselves the question, am I growing, then we, we can't know whether or not there might be something that needs to be addressed. And, and I think that one way that we can recognize that we're beginning to grow stagnant, stagnant in our walk with Christ is if we start to show symptoms of what I'll call aging athlete-itis, okay? And, and, and by this, I, I mean this. Have, have you ever met a person who, in high school, they were like the star of the, the track team or the basketball team, and now they're 40, and they've gained a little weight, and they're a bit slower, but they're always thinking back kind of wistfully to high school. And, and they tell you stories. You've heard these stories, you know, like three or four times, and as they tell you about this moment that they had on the court or on the track, they, they kind of look back in the distance and, and, and you, can, you can tell that uh, what they're thinking is, those were the glory days. Some Christians are exactly like that. Some Christians think wistfully back to the time that they first trusted Christ or when they went on that trip or were involved in that ministry or when that group was their community group or that class or they had that certain experience or they read that certain book and, and they, they, they think those were the glory days of my spiritual life, sadly and kind of wishfully. But those events took, they, took place months and, and months ago and in some cases many, many years ago. I want to um, just tell you something that I, I really believe the Bible teaches is so critical to maturing in the Christian faith. And, and I want to say this especially to those of you who uh, hearken back to the better days when you felt like your, your faith was stronger, uh, but now you, you just feel discouraged. You, you feel like you're kind of a, a washed-out athlete. I hope you'll really let this sink in this morning. Your glory days are in no way behind you. Your glory days are in every way ahead of you. Your glory days are not behind you. They're ahead of you. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking to the same group of people here. And if you could just turn with me into to, to verse 51. 
a long chapter, a good chapter. Here's what Paul writes to these people. Verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. These are your glory days. These are them. This is the time in your life when you will feel most alive. This is the time when you will love God with every ounce and fiber of your soul. When all the questions that you have in life will be answered. When every struggle that you have now will be done away with. And your heart will overflow with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. Thanks to Christ, everything around you will be as it should. And everything inside of you will be what you long for it to be. And in the twinkling of an eye, in that moment of your death, or when Christ returns for you, it will all be yours. God promises you, you will be changed. And what is ahead of you pales in comparison to the best of what you've experienced behind you. And so Paul writes these things so that we would set our hearts ahead on things to come. But I want you to look at how he ends this little section. We just, we just read it right here. It's, it's an amazing transition that he makes. He says in verse, um, in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know what that sounds like? Maturity. That is maturity. And what Paul seems to do in this passage is he seems to connect looking forward with maturity, with strength, with steadfastness now. And and so what I want to do is I want to try to just tie this together a little bit, and I want to share with you uh, uh, an illustration, a final illustration. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and and they can get ready, because we're going to move uh, right into singing pretty quickly. Um, The illustration, they always have problems, but uh, hopefully this will give you some some sense or or idea. Thanks, you guys. I want you to use your imagination for the, the, the few minutes this morning. And I want you to imagine that you're standing in a long field. And overlooking this field that you're on the edge of 
is a vast span of land and territory, and it's got different terrains of, of all kinds, and way off in the far distance, you can see that there are hills and there's valleys. And you know that there's dark forests and deep rivers, and there's deserts and there's meadows. There's all sorts of beauty in this land, but also all kinds of danger. You know that there are lions prowling, but that there's also horses. And you can see in parts of the land that the sun is is shining through, and in other parts you can see dark storm clouds. But beyond it all, so far away, you can hardly see it, there's this soaring mountain range with jagged peaks that are capped with snow. And as you look at this, you take it in, your, your heart is, is filled with wonder and with fear. And you can't see the other side of the mountains, but deep within your bones, you know exactly what's there. It's a new world. It's a great and wonderful garden with a river that's clear like crystal that flows through it. And at the center of this garden is a kingdom. And in its greatest city on a magnificent throne in majesty and glory sits a good and kind and strong king. He's a king who dwells with his people and he has wiped every tear from his eye. You know in your heart that he's the king who made you and that he wants to dwell with you too. And his son, the warrior prince, who left the kingdom for 33 years on a mission to destroy death itself and returned triumphant, he now sits at the right hand of this king and a place has been prepared for you there. But the other side of the mountain is too far for you to ever travel in your lifetime. And even the thought of it feels to you so uh, dangerous and so tiring and so time-consuming. The thought of even trying to make the journey to that kingdom makes you feel afraid and it makes your heart feel very weak. But there's two things that you know. The first is that the king has sent you his word to guide you and his spirit to help you. And his spirit will stand beside you always through every field and through every desert to lead you and strengthen you, to be your helper and to make you mature to prepare you for kingdom life. And the second thing that you know is that the next time the prince leaves his kingdom, it will be to come for you. And wherever you are, even if you are right where you stand now in this field, he will take you up in his arms and bring you to his kingdom forever. And as you think about these things, you begin to long with all your heart 
to stand in the courts of the king even just for one day. And as these thoughts stir inside of you, something begins to well up. And you know what that is? Eagerness. You think, how can I just sit here? How can I just stand? How can I stay still? How can I not run? How can I not be willing to climb and to swim and to march and to fight? I know that on my own, I will never make it to my destination. But I'll get a little closer. And when the prince comes for me, I want him to find me not standing still. I want him to know that I've been making my way towards him. And if he finds me hiking by some quiet river, great. But if he finds me crawling through a dry, forsaken desert, and if my clothes are torn and my shoes are worn out and my heart feels like it's been poured out like a drink, that will be my offering to him. That will be my sacrifice. May he know that I crawl for him. I will seek him even as he seeks me. And in the twinkling of an eye, in that moment when I am finally changed, may there be a little less of me to change today than there might have been yesterday. For when I stand in the courts of the king, I want to be found as worthy as I can be. Behold, the prince is coming. I must be ready. Maturity belongs to people who are eager for it. Maturity belongs to people who cannot stand still. It's to those whose whose joy in the destination outweighs the overwhelmingness of the journey. Maturity is for those who will walk in the Spirit and in God's power, they'll just keep, keep taking one step and then another step and then another step and keep doing that until their last breath, this side of the mountain range. Search for the Lord and for his strength. Seek his face always, the psalmist writes. And and maturity has a way of finding people who decide to live like that. One thing is so true about what the Bible teaches, and that is this, that God takes exceeding joy in laying hold of infants of any age and any place in life. And he loves to raise them up into grown-ups. Why don't you stand? Let's sing together about our King.